can take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Joshua chapter 6. We're in Joshua chapter 6. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. So wrote atheist Richard Dawkins. And it's sections of the Bible like Joshua 6 that spark sentiments like those in him and in many critics of the Bible. Because in the book of Joshua, we see God charging the nation of Israel to completely wipe out the Canaanites. And so many people respond with outrage that God would actually do such a thing, that God would actually destroy an entire city, including non-combatants, women, children. I wonder how you would respond to such a charge, how you might respond to Richard Dawkins. Uh, Maybe you yourself have such concerns. Uh, Some Christians are embarrassed by Joshua 6 and chapters like it, and so they feel like maybe they have to apologize for God. Uh, Others have even suggested that the, the God of the Old Testament is actually different than the God of the New Testament, that the Old Testament God is harsher. Uh, more violent, more judgmental, more angry, and the God of the New Testament is nicer and softer and more accepting. When we started the book of Joshua many weeks ago, I knew that Joshua 6 was coming, and for weeks I've been thinking long and hard about the best way to help us to deal with this, and And I will have a few words to say about these matters, but I'm going to be very straightforward by saying to you that my main goal is not to defend God's Word, but to preach it. I sympathize with the sentiments of Charles Spurgeon who said, there seems to me to have been twice as much done in some ages in defending the Bible as in expounding it. But if the whole of our strength shall henceforth go to the exposition and spreading of it, we may leave it pretty much to defend itself. And Spurgeon is famous for his example of a caged lion, and that the best way to defend the lion is simply to let it loose. Spurgeon says, never mind about defending Deuteronomy or the whole of the Pentateuch, preach Jesus Christ, let the lion out, and see who will dare to approach him. Now, I'm not saying there's not a place for apologetics or for asking questions and seeking answers about hard things and wrestling through things, Uh, but I believe the most valuable thing I can do for you this morning is simply to preach the text, let the lion out, and let the Lord have His way with you and your heart through His Word. And so, instead of trying to minimize the offense of God's Word, I'm actually going to increase it because... The slaughter of the inhabitants of Jericho is not the only offensive thing in this passage. There are at least four very offensive things in this text, and my prayer is that the shock of the offense will get our attention, 
arrest our souls, cause us to take a hard and honest look at ourselves, at God, and at Jesus Christ, because it is Jesus that this passage ultimately is about. And I think Jesus is the key to, in the end, finding peace with Joshua chapter 6 and scriptures like it. So, let us, as Spurgeon says, let us now let the lion out, and please stand with me out of honor and reverence for the reading of the precious and perfect and true words of our God. This is Joshua chapter 6. Spirit of God says, Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out, and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with a ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up every one straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priest and said to them, take up the ark of the covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, you shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout, then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once, and they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord, and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumpet continually, and the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day, they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. So they did for six days." On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction." Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing of destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord." 
So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword." But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time saying, "'Curse before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city Jericho.'" At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. Let's pray. Father, this is an amazing word, and it is a hard word, and I pray um, that you would help me to preach it. There is so much in this chapter, so much that could be said, and, and, and so little time to say it in. So, Father, I pray that you would help me to uh, focus on the most crucial and critical things in this passage, and that you would give the congregation ears to hear your word and the message that the Spirit is speaking to us through this text this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So there are at least four very offensive things about this text, and the first thing that I want us to note is the offense of God's rule, the offense of God's rule. Now, if you've been following our series in Joshua, you'll remember that the Lord has promised the land of Canaan to Israel. Uh, He actually made that promise hundreds of years prior to Abraham, the father of the nation. And the long-term purpose of establishing Israel in that land would be to usher in blessing to people all over the world. But the problem is that Canaan is occupied by a very fierce people who were not too keen on just opening up their doors and letting Israel come in and set up a home there. Instead, the current occupants of the land are very resistant. Look at verse 1. Now, Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. So, Jericho is a city on extreme high alert. There is maximum vigilance. There is maximum security. No one is allowed in or out of the city. They are prepared for war. The gates are barred. There are guards up in the high walls and towers looking down on the approaching Israelite army. They are prepared for a siege. They have dug in, and they are circling the wagons. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about how remarkable that response is. Everyone in Jericho knows 
that this is no ordinary invasion. Uh, Do you remember what our friend Rahab, whom we first met in chapter 2, said? Uh, when, when, when Joshua had sent some spies into the city and, 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 and you had Rahab, even though she was a Canaanite, even though she was part of the enemy, Rahab decided to help them and she hid them from Jericho's security forces. And Rahab, in chapter 2, said to the spies, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen on us for we, we, all of us in Jericho, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. Now, in chapter 4, the imposing, raging Jordan River stood between Israel and Jericho, and amazingly, as we read a couple of weeks ago, God pushed back the waters of the river so that Joshua and his army could cross over to the other side on dry ground. Now, my point in all this is that this wasn't a secret miracle. Uh, Word spread about this, and and what's the result? Well, if you look at chapter 5, verse 1, it says, As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who are beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who are by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel." Now, now, the only reason I'm belaboring all of this is, is because it makes the response in chapter 6, verse 1 stand out all the more. The approach of Israel has been long in coming. The march of Israel to Jericho was surely one of the worst kept secrets in the history of warfare. This is not a surprise attack. Uh, one might think that, that God was deliberately broadcasting His impending arrival to the doomed city, and indeed, that's exactly what He's doing. Everyone knew that the approach of Israel meant the approach of God, and the people are terrified. And while Rahab has come to her senses and realizes that the best place to seek shelter from the storm of God's wrath is in the safety of God's arms, no one else follows suit. Does that surprise you? You would think that if, God, if the God who devastated Egypt, the God who does signs and wonders, who parts raging rivers, if this God is approaching, you would think that a rational people would give up. A sane people would, would at least say, well, wait a minute, what, what are we doing? Why are we fighting this God? Perhaps God has a good reason for his anger and vengeance, and perhaps we should find out more about this God and and what might be done to turn away his wrath. Instead, they dig in their heels, fortify their city, and in the face of clear evidence, not only of the existence of this God, but the power of this God and the wrath of this God towards his enemies, in the face of all of that, They refuse to give in. They refuse to consider that maybe they've done something to deserve God's judgment, to admit that they are wrong. And instead of seeking to make peace with God, they will wage war against Him. They will fight for their own way, their own life, their own self-determination, their own idols. In fact, this was the attitude of almost everyone in Canaan, because 
A few chapters later, in Joshua chapter 11, verse 19, we read that there was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. No one wanted to make peace with God. Now, folks, this doesn't just tell you something about Jericho. This tells you something about every single one of us apart from the grace of God working in our hearts. The Bible, indeed the entire history of humanity, is a story of insurrection, uh, of our hard-hearted rebellion against God. The Bible says that we are all sinners. Romans chapter 1 verse 30 says that man in his natural state is a hater of God. Uh, Romans 8, 7 describes humanity as being hostile to God. You see, we are offended by God and the idea that He would rule over us, uh, that He would dare demand absolute allegiance and fealty from us. And God's demands are not just an Old Testament thing. Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus' point is not hate your mom. Jesus' point is love them less than you love me. Love me more than you love them. That is enormously offensive. And if you don't think that Jesus is good, you might see that as enormously arrogant for Jesus to demand something like that. But He does. He did. And we hated it. We hated that message, that demand from Jesus that He be supreme in our lives. Because if He is supreme, guess what that means? That means we're not, and we must give up control. John chapter 3 describes the coming of Jesus into the world, and almost everyone rejected Jesus. And why did they reject Jesus? Because John tells us the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. That's why we killed Jesus when he came. We hated the light. And we tried to snuff out that light. This is the history of the human race. It's your story. It's my story. We love our way of life so much that we refuse to accept God's authority. And we are so committed to doing things our way that we would rather die than listen to God. Romans chapter 1 says that, that we decided in our sin to turn to other gods. In the ancient world, it was gods of sticks and stone and metal statues that, that they thought they could control uh, and manipulate to give them what they needed. It's still that way, by the way, in many parts of the world today. Go to India. In America, the gods are often money or sex or entertainment or sports or other earthly pleasures, things we try to manipulate and control to give us what we think we really need. And even though God tells us that true peace and joy and satisfaction are found only in Him, we don't believe Him. And so we cling to our idols, and only from our cold, dead fingers will these idols be pried forth. And that is exactly what is happening to Jericho 
It's why they are digging in and refusing to repent and turn to God. They will go their own way or die trying. I, I said earlier, you would think that a sane person would, would, would surrender to God, but, but sin is not sane. Sin makes us crazy. The prophet Jonah, when he was on his way via the belly of a fish to warn another evil city of God's judgment, Jonah said, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. One commentator says that those words, vain idols, could be translated as worthless things of fleeting vapors, uh, emphasizing that placing hope in such things is utterly useless. It's like trying to get out of a hole by grabbing onto the wind. It's useless. Only the Lord can save. And it is tragic because when we bar our gates and construct our high walls and defensive towers against God, we really are missing out on the best possible thing we could have, which is God. Uh, that's what sin is. It, it's turning away from God as the source of hope and, and, and satisfaction and delight and seeking it in other things. This is the meaning of the indictment that the prophet Jeremiah bestows on Israel when he says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Folks, that was my life before I became a Christian. My life was wrapped up in going from broken cistern to broken cistern, banking my hopes in, in, in money, in worldly sinful pleasures, in popularity, and I was a dying man until I came to the fountain to drink. The very thing that offended me, God's wonderful rule in my life, was the very thing that I needed to save my life. But if we insist on going our own way, the end will be death, which is why Jeremiah says later on in Jeremiah 17, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. That is the sad ending to everyone who is offended by God's rule. And as chapter 6 begins, Jericho sits on the threshold of that horrible ending. And so we see the offense of, of God's rule. We also see the offense of God's foolishness, the offense of God's foolishness. Now, I put foolish in quotation marks because obviously God is infinitely wise. He's not foolish, but, but God very often acts in a way that seems strange to us. And God here gives to Joshua a most unusual military strategy here. Joshua's a warrior. He's a military man. He's a, he's a general. He's been in battle before, and he's, he's been doing everything that he can conventionally, according to, to our wisdom, the things that you should do. Uh, he, see, he sent out spies to, to, to scope out the city and, and get information. Uh, we found him at the end of uh, chapter 5 engaged in some personal reconnaissance himself. But God comes along and he says, Joshua, you're going to march around the city once a day for six days with priests blowing trumpets and carrying the ark of the Lord, which, which represents the, the presence of God among them. And on the seventh day, they would march around Jericho seven times. And then after one long blast with a ram's horn, all the people would shout and the wall of the city would fall down. Huh? Huh? 
If you're thinking conventional warfare, this is very bizarre. No military general would ever dream of such a tactic. It's, it's weird. It's weird. And everyone's supposed, besides the, the blowing of the horns, everyone's supposed to be quiet. That's not how they did it back then. They shouted at each other and they yelled insults to each other and they tried to intimidate the other people by, by all of their, their, their yelling and their shouting. No, 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 be quiet. Just blow, the, blow, those, blow those trumpets. You, you shout when I tell you to shout. All of this is, is, is really strange. Does not seem to be helpful. Seems to be a waste of time, a waste of energy, counterproductive. It even seems ridiculous. I mean, I mean, won't they, as they are marching around the city, unnecessarily expose themselves to the inhabitants of Jericho? Are there not some snipers up there on the wall who are really good with a bow? Would they not be sitting ducks? This doesn't make any sense. Uh, somebody once said that this, this whole tactic, it's like a coach saying to his basketball team, here's the game plan. I want you to go out and hold the ball for four quarters. Don't take any shots. Even if you have an open layup, don't take it. In the last seconds of the game, throw the ball up in the air and it'll, it'll wind up going through the hoop and we'll win. It's not hard to imagine after the first couple of days, some of the inhabitants of Jericho laughing at them, uh, taunting them, throwing, maybe throwing garbage at them, saying, I can't believe we were scared of these weirdos, these fools. And yet, brothers and sisters, what we see here is just a part of a, a pattern that we see throughout the Scriptures that illustrates a larger principle of how God works. In our own wisdom and understanding, we think that we know how things should happen. Uh, we think that we know what is best, and we are very confident in what we think we know. And God comes along, and He upsets all of that. <laughs> And he does something that seems absolutely ridiculous in our eyes. And yet he ends up doing something absolutely remarkable through that thing that in our eyes initially made no sense to us. Now, of course God no longer tells his people to take up arms and tear down the cities of God's enemies. This was a very unique time in redemptive history, what God was doing through Israel. Instead, he tells us to fight against and tear down invisible strongholds, uh, lofty ideas and philosophies that are exalted over Jesus Christ, which hold people in spiritual captivity. And how do we wage that warfare? What, what, are the, what powerful weapons do we have? They are things that the world would deem as foolish. They are, as Sinclair Ferguson said, our humble Christian testimony our fragmented Christian lives. Our great weapon is that we go into our room and we talk to an invisible God and we plead with Him to advance His kingdom in the world. God delights to use fragile vessels in an enterprise that this world counts as folly in order that His kingdom might advance in the world. Prayer is like that. What could be more foolish than that? Or, or think about evangelism. We've been talking about evangelism for the past few weeks in, in our Sunday school class, and, and I don't know about you, but, but it is not uncommon for me when I share the gospel, I, I'm having a conversation with the person I'm sharing the gospel with, but, but I also have a conversation with myself in the back of my mind, where I'm saying to myself, this sounds really weird. What I'm telling this person must seem like the most kooky thing in the world. 
maybe that's not spiritual for me to even engage in those conversations, but that, that sometimes has gone through my mind. Uh, and they must think that I'm a kook. And yet, the Bible says that in this gospel that I am sharing, that seems so strange to others, that sometimes seems so strange to me, this gospel is the power of salvation for everyone who believes. Because God, 1 Corinthians 1.27 says, takes what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He takes what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And we need God to do that as it simultaneously demonstrates God's glory and power while weaning us off of our prideful self-reliance and and, and weaning us off of our overconfidence and our strength and wisdom. And we are taught to trust God no matter what, even if what He is doing seems strange according to our understanding. And when we trust the foolish things of God instead of our own wisdom and strength, it is then in those times that you and I can be used by God in very powerful ways for His kingdom. And so Joshua and the people trusted and obeyed God in this seemingly foolish thing. And so it was evident that the victory came not through their own power and military genius, which would have glorified them, Instead, the author of Hebrews says that it was by faith that the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Folks, this is God's MO. And that pattern of taking things that seem foolish to us and using them in mighty ways is climaxed in the cross of Jesus Christ. That through a weak and bleeding and suffering and forsaken man, salvation would come to the whole world. How strange is that? How bizarre is that? How foolish that must seem. And yet how wonderfully wise and powerful it turns out to be. So we have in Joshua 6 the offense of God's rule, the offense of God's foolishness, but we also have the offense of God's fearsome judgment. The walls come down, they capture the city, and verse 21 says, they devoted all in the city to destruction both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. So here's the part that is really offensive to many people, which is the comprehensive destruction of the people of Jericho. And it leads people to say, really, God had Israel do this? Kill everyone? Uh, What about innocent bystanders? What about children? This is tough stuff to read. And it leads some to ask, is God unjust? Is God unfair? How are we to process this? Well, I don't have time to say all that could be said, but let me say a few things. The first thing that's important to know is that God is a holy God and that the wages of sin is death. So, so when we get to Joshua 6, this should not surprise us. In the opening pages of the Bible, uh, God warned that to rebel against God would bring the curse of death. And, and we've seen this already in the Bible, haven't we? Re- remember at one point the world got so evil that God sent a global flood and wiped out everyone except Noah and his family? Uh, or consider the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah so corrupt that God rained fire on those cities and 
destroyed them, sparing just Lot and his family. Here in Joshua 6, God doesn't use a flood or fire, but the armies of Israel. But we see again the message that sin brings, the judgment of God. Secondly, someone may ask, well, what about the innocent people in Jericho? Well, that question is nonsensical from a biblical perspective because there is no such thing. Uh, There is no one that does not deserve to be punished by God. In Romans 3, the apostle says that uh, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who seeks after God. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. From a spiritual perspective, there was not a single innocent person in Jericho. But then someone might ask, well, why Jericho? Uh, Why these particular cities in Canaan? Because there there are other cities in the world full of sinners. They're, They're allowed to live. God never sent Israel to destroy them. In fact, if you read in Deuteronomy, God gives, you, uh, God gives them uh, some, some distinctives in, in how they are to, to deal with and wage war against the people of Canaan versus, versus people and cities outside of Canaan. Well, the answer to that question is, thirdly, uh, there are degrees of wickedness. All sin is wrong and all sin is worthy of death, but... There are times in the Bible where a person or a people or a culture sinks so deep into depravity that God deems it best to not let them go on, but to cut them off. And the Canaanites had gotten to that point. Israel's war against the Canaanites did not come out of a vacuum, and it was not some greedy land grab. It's not ethnic cleansing, as, as, as Richard Dawkins would say. This is not an ethnic issue, but it is a theological and spiritual issue. It is the fulfillment of God's purpose that He laid out hundreds of years prior. Uh, you may remember in the book of Genesis, um, God promised when God promised Abraham that his descendants would possess the land of Canaan, God tells him up front that, that but that's not going to happen right away. Uh, there is going to be a gap in time, and so God says to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years. There he's talking about the slavery of Israel in Egypt. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity or the sin of the Amorites, the Canaanites, is not yet complete. So did you follow that? Did you follow the, 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 what God is saying here? God's essentially telling Abraham that the Canaanites are in the land now, they are evil now, but it wasn't the right time to judge them. Uh, Imagine this, imagine a cup that is partially full of liquid, and, and the liquid in the cup represents their sin. The cup is not completely full yet, but there will come a time where that cup will be full. And once we get to that point, the iniquity, the sin, of the Amorites, the Canaanites, will be complete. They will have gotten as, as bad as God will allow, and the time will come for them to be finally judged. And so, the untold story of Jericho is not that it is… Uh, uh, Jericho, the story of Jericho is not just a story of judgment, uh, but a, part of the untold story is, is that it's also a story of God's incredible patience. He bore with their evil for hundreds of years, and he did nothing about it. 
And these folks were really bad. They were involved in in temple prostitution and witchcraft and and sexual abuse of children and, and animals and incest. And on top of all that, child sacrifice to a a deity, a god named Molech. Ever heard of Molech? Bad god, really bad god. He was the god of the underworld, represented as a bull-headed being with a human body. And, and, And the Molech statues would have hollow bellies. And in those bellies, a fire would be stoked and made very, very hot. And in the outstretched arms of the statue, they placed little children. And they would be held by those white hot arms, burned to death over the blazing fires. That is completely and utterly satanic and twisted and perverted. And God had allowed this to go on for a long time. And, and, and to an outsider, it might even appear that God did not take sin seriously to allow all of these horrible things to go on and not put it to an end. But what we see in God's dealings with Jericho is an illustration of the fact that God's timetable is often very different than ours. And God is way more patient than us. I know Richard Dawkins would say, God's impatient. Are you kidding me? Allowing this to go on for 400 years? God is way more patient than us. And there's a reason why he is patient. The apostle Peter, speaking to people in his own day who who were growing impatient as they waited for the day that Jesus would return and bring justice to the world and end evil once and for all, he says this, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness. Seems slow to you, but it's not slow. But here's the key. What what is He doing? He says, God is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God delays his judgment, not because he does not care about sin and evil and injustice going on in the world. God delays his judgment because he is waiting for others to repent and come to God for mercy. And I don't know if over the years other Canaanites came to know the Lord and and, and how many came to know the Lord, but we do know that Rahab was the final one that God was waiting for. All the rest of Jericho had their hearts barred and shut against God, defiant to the end, but God worked in Rahab's heart and Rahab came forward and once she sought God and was found by him, the time had come for God to deal with the rest. Fourthly, We have to recognize that God unleashed this destruction upon the Canaanites because God sought to preserve Israel from corruption. God says in Deuteronomy chapter 20, but in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. Why? That they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. So you don't start worshiping Molech and killing kids and engage in all these heinous behaviors. 
God's plan for Israel was for them to be a holy nation devoted to Him, living in a way that demonstrated something of God's righteous character to the surrounding nations. But because they too were sinners, God knew they were weak and that they could easily succumb to temptation and become just like them. In fact, you keep reading the story long enough in the Bible and you see Israel succumbing. They, they did not take God's warning seriously about the influence of the surrounding peoples. And the physical destruction of Jericho and its people and its possessions illustrated a spiritual principle of separation. The people of God were to completely reject sin and unfaithfulness to God. Fifthly, and I know that what disturbs many people about this story uh, is the, the thought of children being killed in the invasion of Jericho. But unlike the atheist critics of the Bible, the Bible always puts the fault of judgment on man and not on God. And I think we have here an illustration of how we don't sin in a vacuum. In other words, when we sin, it doesn't just affect ourselves, but those around us, including our children. Now, I don't have time to sketch out a theology of what happens to babies when they die. I do believe you can infer from Scripture that those who haven't reached a point where they can cognitively rebel against God or cognitively repent like a newborn or a fetus, I do think God's grace covers them and they're saved and will go to heaven. They still need God's grace because remember, no one is innocent. Uh, David says in Psalm 51, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. In other words, sin dwelt in him from the very beginning. Uh, there's no such thing as an innocent baby in the deepest, most spiritual sense. And so if a baby dies, that child needs the grace of God to have his sins cleansed and be made holy because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. But all that to say that if I'm right about that, then God was merciful to those children to take them to heaven immediately as opposed to letting them grow up to be abused and to be indoctrinated by Canaanite culture and join the rest of the people in active rebellion against God and then die and go to hell. And if anyone might object and say, well, why, why can God take the lives of, of children in judgment, but the Canaanites couldn't? And by the way, this question touches on the modern-day abortion crisis in America. Why, why, why would it be okay for God to take a child's life and not us, especially if aborting that baby would send her to heaven? Here's the difference. Are you ready for this? This is deep. You're not God, and He is. The Scripture says, see now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive, I wound, and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Folks, life and death are the prerogative of God, and He has the wisdom to know when to kill and when to spare. And we trust that God knows when it's appropriate for God to authorize men to do that, as He authorized Israel in this moment to be His hand of judgment upon the people, or, or as He authorizes governments to have the power of the sword to enforce the law. And so, we, we trust God with that, and we leave that with God. Finally, what we see happening in Jericho is a preview of the final judgment. If Jericho is sobering and terrifying and it should be, 
If Jericho is serious, know that there actually is a worse fate that awaits any sinner who persists in their rebellion against God. For people who try to make it seem like the God of the Old Testament is tougher and more wrathful than the God of the New Testament are not reading their Bibles closely enough. Indeed, it was the Lord Jesus Himself who spoke about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. He said, if you do not repent, you too will perish and enter into eternal torment. In fact, one of the scariest passages in in the entire Bible involves Jesus Himself. Uh, Revelation chapter 14 speaks of the final fate of anyone who, like the people of Jericho, would stubbornly persist in trying to shut God out of their lives and be the God of their own lives. The Apostle John tells us that such a person will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The Lamb is Jesus. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. The horrors of Jericho are nothing compared to that day of final judgment that is coming on sinners. And for those of us who are believers, the story of Jericho should remind us of the seriousness of sin and the imminent danger of the lost It should remind us that God is incredibly patient, but one day, as with Jericho, the time of patience will run out and the time of judgment will come. And so, what does that mean? What does that mean for you and for me? It means that we should be going beyond these church walls and warning people of what is coming, warning our friends, warning our neighbors, our co-workers, whomever God may bring across our path, praying for them. Are you praying for unbelievers Do you even know unbelievers? Do you talk to unbelievers? If you're not talking to unbelievers, that needs to change. Uh, You need to be praying for opportunities to warn people of the coming judgment. But, of course, the coming judgment, which is offensive to people, is not the end of the story. There is one final offensive lesson of Joshua 6, one final gloriously offensive lesson, and that is the offense of God's generous mercy. In the middle of the destruction of Jericho, there is one bright moment. Verse 25, but Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Rahab was spared. Why was Rahab spared? Because she wasn't a a sinner who deserved judgment? No. Indeed, the author reminds us of her sin all too clearly as he calls her Rahab the prostitute. That doesn't mean she remained a prostitute. Instead, God is highlighting what Rahab was to demonstrate that God shows mercy to all kinds of sinners, the the most unlikely of people, people who you would think were very far from the kingdom of God. Rahab is spared, not because she is good, but through faith. 
So the author of Hebrews tells us that by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. That friendly welcome was evidence of her faith, of her trust in God. We read it back in chapter 2 where she confesses the sovereignty of God and, and she, she cast her allegiance on the side of God. You see, Rahab had stopped trying to be her own Lord, ruling her own life. And unlike the rest of Jericho, she realized that what God had for her was so much better than what she could achieve or experience on her own. And so she trusted in his plan and submitted to his lordship and was saved. And this kind of grace is offensive to many people. Do you remember in the New Testament the reaction of the religious leaders in Jesus' day when Jesus showed compassion and grace to a notoriously sinful woman, perhaps she was a prostitute too, and she, like Rahab, came seeking grace and mercy from God? Well, the religious leaders, do you remember their reaction? Were they, were they praising God for that? Were they like, all right, this is great, someone else is coming to know God? No, they were outraged. They were angry. They were offended. They could not believe that Jesus would associate with someone like her, a low life like her. And, and, and uh, uh, surely he would, he would be with, with respectable people like us. They were offended by the idea that bad people can be saved, that bad people go to heaven. Many people today feel the same and, and think that you have to be really good, you have to work really hard, and that will make you right with God, and that will get you to heaven. And of course, such people usually think that, that they are just fine with that. They measure up to the standard. Other people don't, but they sure do. And the notion that someone who has lived a bad, sinful life can just, just in a moment, in a second, cry out to God for mercy, and God was, is just going to accept a person like that? And that's it? That offends our religious sensibilities. I knew of someone once who was very angry at the idea that a person who had hurt and betrayed her could be saved by God if he would but trust in him for forgiveness she was angry at that idea. She was offended at that idea. She wanted justice for that person, not forgiveness, not redemption. Indeed, we all get angry and want justice when we see evil people do evil things, and we don't realize that if God were to give to everyone what they deserve, we all would receive the wrath and judgment of God. But Rahab discovered a beautiful truth about God, that as extreme as his judgment is, so also His grace and His mercy. And if you're here this morning as an unbeliever, I urge you to call on the name of the Lord, call on Jesus to save you, humble yourself, turn from your sins, turn to Him. It doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter what your track record is like, it doesn't matter if you have all these skeletons in your closet and if other people knew about them, they would be horrified at you. Call on the name of Jesus and you will be saved. And if you believe 
Know that you owe your life to this faithful, humble ex-prostitute. You know that? You're a Christian here. You owe your life to Rahab because Rahab became a part of Israel and married an Israelite and had babies. Who had babies? Who had babies? Until hundreds of babies later, hundreds of years later, her great direct ancestor, the Lord Jesus Christ, would come into the world, he being the only innocent man who ever lived, and he would die on a cross. And why? Why? Because the message of the gospel is not about you being offended by God and him making himself acceptable to you, it's actually the opposite. God was offended by you and me. And, 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 and offended by our sin and our, our idolatry and the evil that is in our hearts. Richard Dawkins and his atheistic tirade rightly condemns petty, unjust, unforgiving, vindictive, bloodthirsty, misogynistic, infanticidal, megalomaniacal, ethnic cleansing bullies. He rightly condemns that, but what Dawkins doesn't realize is that he's not describing God, he's describing us. Romans chapter 1, Paul tells you in his description of us, the human race, he says, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, that means prideful, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. You find yourself somewhere on this list? I know I do, more than once. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. We're the problem, not God. It's you. It's me. It's been us all along, and we have been too stubborn to admit it. And so Jesus had to come and show us our sin and all of its ugliness by becoming the offensive thing himself as our substitute. And so on Jesus, God placed Rahab's sins of prostitution and lying and idolatry. All those things were put on him. Indeed, every kind of sin imaginable was placed on Jesus on the cross because Jesus came to save every kind of sinner. And so the sword of God's judgment fell not on a city, but on this one man. The fiery, hellish torment of Revelation 17 was experienced by Jesus, which was far worse than anything anyone in Jericho or any other time has experienced. Why? Because he sought to pay the full price of sin for every single person who would believe in him. And and by the way, I, I, I believe all those departed babies that we were talking about earlier, so that his people might experience the peace and the blessing and the joy that comes with God's forgiveness and salvation, paying the full price for sin 
so we don't have to. And so we have that glorious declaration, for our sake, God made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Though God is so offended by sinners, His love for sinners drove Him to, to do that, to do that for his, to His Son for us so that He wouldn't have to be offended anymore, so that any who trust in Him could finally be made acceptable to God. And this, my friend, is the glorious offense of the gospel. Believe it, count on it, preach it, and live by it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this was a hard word to preach. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help my friends here to hear that word rightly and to respond to that word rightly. That we who do believe would thank God for our salvation and never take it for granted. And that we would share the message of salvation beyond these church walls to others so that others may experience what we have experienced in you, forgiveness and peace and mercy and adoption into your family and a future home in heaven when we die. And Father, I pray for anyone who walked into this room unbelieving that this moment that that might change and that they would follow in the footsteps of Rahab, that they might see and perceive and recognize the approach of God and the terrifying judgment of God, but would also realize that safety from God is found in God, and that everything that is experienced in God is far superior, far greater, far more wonderful than anything else we might bank our hopes in and build our lives on. Thank you that though our sins be many, your mercy is more. And thank you that your son paid the debt for all who believe. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.